career at the New York Times, Harrison Salisbury served as the bureau chief in post-World War II Moscow, reported from Hanoi during the Vietnam War, and in retirement, witnessed the Tiananmen Square massacre firsthand. In a new biography of the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, our speaker and his co-author, Donald E. Davis, make use of Salisbury's personal archive of interviews, articles, and correspondence to shed light on the personal triumphs and shortcomings of this preeminent reporter and to illuminate the world in which he lived. I'm very pleased that I'm introducing someone for the first time. He's unknown to many of you in Richmond. Uh, Dr. Eugene Trani <laughs> is one of the most influential Richmonders of our times. He served as president of Virginia Commonwealth University, of course, from 1990 to 2009. And during his 19-year tenure, he led the school through a remarkable transformation, building it into a major urban research institution and the largest university in Virginia. Much of downtown Richmond has experienced growth and revitalization because of the creative expansion of VCU during the period of Dr. Trani's leadership. Now, you may or may not know that by training, Dr. Trani, Dr. Trani is one of us. He's one of our tribe. He's a historian. And he's written extensively on higher education, diplomatic history, and U.S.-Soviet relations, and has spoken here at the VHS in the past. And it is, of course, his work as a historian that brings him to us today. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Dr. Eugene Tranny, who will speak to us today about the reporter who knew too much. Good morning. I am tethered here because they're filming this, so I'm not going to move very much, and I appreciate the very warm introduction, uh, and it is my pleasure to be here and talk about Harrison Salisbury, uh, who I presume a lot of you read his dispatches uh, over the years in the New York Times and uh, much of what he wrote. Um, so I want to spend, I'll spend about half an hour, I'm going to read certain sections of the book and then open it up for questions, and I'm really interested in the questions. Uh, how did Don Davis and I get to Harrison Salisbury? Um, in, Don Davis and I were graduate students together at Indiana University. He in Russian history, me in American foreign policy, American diplomatic history. Uh, and we had collaborated on a couple of articles, uh, but uh, really became fascinated with American-Russian-Chinese relations. Uh, my personal uh, experiences really were formative for me. I had the great pleasure in 1981 of spending four months at Moscow University as the Fulbright Lecturer in American History. Uh, interesting time in Moscow. Um, I traveled extensively within the Soviet Union, actually got thrown out of Chechnya, uh, sent back to Moscow because uh, in the question and answers, session at uh, the first of uh, a couple lectures I was supposed to give, um, they asked me about the, uh, student asked me about the recent invasion, the sending of Soviet troops to Afghanistan, and I said, mark my words, this will be the Soviet Union's Vietnam. I never got to give another lecture, they just said, <laughs> go back to Moscow. But that was a really formative experience on me uh, as it was obviously on Salisbury. Uh, and one of the things that was so interesting to me was the question 
that they kept on asking, why do Americans hate Russians? Interesting question. Think about that question. Uh, so that was four months, and I've traveled extensively since then. In 1984, I spent five weeks in the People's Republic of China, my first time in the People's Republic of China, as a lecturer for the United States Information Agency. And what struck me was the exact opposite, how much the Chinese loved Americans and how sympathetic they were uh, to uh, uh, America. So that led me to eventually do an op-ed piece for the Kansas City Star, which was entitled, China the Friend versus Russia the Foe. Uh, and I'm gonna read a couple of paragraphs from that and then set the stage for Salisbury. A colleague of mine who had just ended a teaching assignment in the Soviet Union sent me a postcard in which he said that all he could think of as he left Moscow was Martin Luther King's famous line, free at last, free at last. That observation of my own recent experiences in both Russia and China called to mind, again, the vastly different perceptions among Americans of the two largest communists, this was written in 1984, nations in the world, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic and the uh, People's Republic of China. When Americans visit Russia, and I, sadly this is still true, they usually sense deep suspicion on the part of their host. Russian waiters, clerks, custom officials, service people, bureaucrats and government officials do make trips to the Soviet Union, now Russia memorably, but most frequently it is not a, po a positive sense. American visitors to the Soviet Union uh, I'm continuing to quote, are put off by the number of uniformed personnel, uh, both police and military, who they see. In contrast, Americans who visit China usually comment on the great warmth and hospitality which, with which they are received. Chinese hosts <coughs> and service people have a knack for making visitors feel free, truly welcome. Amer many Americans have left the Soviet Union with a great sense of relief. In fact, I've been at times on planes where there have been spontaneous cheers as planes leave Moscow or St. Petersburg. And departures from China are sad uh, with Americans feeling that they have new friendships that will last a life. That led to three books by Davis and Trani, of which the Salisbury book is the third. The first book was entitled The First Cold War, and it was the legacy of Woodrow Wilson in U.S.-Soviet relations. It was published by the University of Missouri Press in, I think, 2002. Uh, and it was immediately translated into Russian uh, and published by the Ulma Press, Pervia Holodnaya Vaina, the First Cold War. And it was published in Chinese by the, people's, uh, by the Peking University Press. Uh, so it got wide circulation. The second book, was entitled Distorted Mirrors, Americans and Their Relations with Russia and China in the 20th Century. Uh, and that was also published by the University of Missouri Press. Um, and what it was was a series of profiles of significant Americans who helped form the images of Russia and China. So a reporter like Eugene Lyons uh, in terms of Russia, or George Kennan, uh, both the elder uh, and George Kennan, the diplomat, uh, on the Chinese side, Pearl Buck, Edgar Snow uh, uh, are two of them, and Teddy White, uh, to name three writers, uh, but there are others who are covered, and Salisbury is somebody that we mentioned in that book. 
That book was also published in Russian right away by Vagrius. Uh, I get a kick out of the cover, Distorted Mirrors, and you can see what they do with the three flags. Uh, it was then published in Chinese, but it was never published in, I mean, uh, Spanish, but it was never published in Chinese. I had a two-book contract with the uh, Peking University to publish the first Cold War in this book, but there was a chapter on Tiananmen Square in the book, and there's something called the Publication Bureau, and it'll never be published in the People's Republic of China. Now, a Taiwan publisher, a Taiwanese publisher, seems interested in it, no doubt, to give a dig uh, at the People's Republic of China, but you ought to be aware that there is something called the Publication Bureau that controls what is published in China and what is not published in China, uh, and that is a microcosm of bigger problems uh, that you have in China. The third book uh, that Davis and I wrote uh, is The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, uh, which was published recently by uh, Roman and Littlefield, uh, and uh, uh, that's what I'm going to talk about uh, 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 today. Um, who is Harrison Salisbury? What did Salisbury believe? Uh, what uh, is the significance of a journalist like Salisbury? And I believe we miss journalists like Sal uh, Salisbury. Salisbury wrote on December 27th, 1967, sometimes the journalist duties takes him far from home. Sometimes he finds a subject in the community where he lives or in his own country. But his duty, to my way of thinking, is always the same, to seek out the truth as best he can, to present it as simply and forcefully as possible, and to hope that his readers will then act with wisdom, intelligence, in the directions of a better community, a better nation, or a better world. His career spans six decades, from the 1930s through the early 1900s. It encompassed a career with United Press, through World War II, freelancing jobs, and then with the New York Times from 1949 till his retirement in 1973, and then as an author and literary gadfly until his death uh, in 1993. Throughout that period of time, he found time to publish 29 books, write many articles and dispatches, appear on many lecture circuits, uh, he was most notably the recipient of a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting in 1955, and again in 1957 as he shared with all the foreign journalists, uh, international journalists of the New York Times. He got the Overseas Press Club Award and the George Polk Memorial Award for foreign reporting in 1957 and 1966. And after his retirement, he was president of the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, uh, uh, from 1975 to 76, and the Authors League. His career as a foreign correspondent took him to every imaginable place on the globe, but he had three great interests, Russia, China, and America. Um, so he was a very significant reporter, and I want to read the opening of the book because that says something about uh, Harrison Salisbury and what other people thought. Condolences flooded... Charlotte Salisbury's mailbox after her husband's death on July 5th, 1993, at the age of 84. They had first met in 1955, but it was not until 1964, when she was 50, that they married 
a second for him and a third for her. He referred to her as his love and comrade, she called him Harry, and always realized that Harrison was important to American reporting and needed space. David Levine's whimsical pen uh, sketch of uh, Harrison for the uh, New York Review of Books, that is the sketch right there, uh, was a good sign that Harrison was no uh, ordinary journalist. Colleagues and contemporaries were exuberant in their praises and saddened by a heartfelt loss. New York Times columnist Russell Baker summed up Harrison's lifetime of reporting. The work was so important that a grown man could be proud of doing it well. Harrison's protege, David Halberstam, and by the way, Davis and I are now on to a book about David Halberstam, thought of Harrison and Charlotte as role models and referred to him as an American original. Halberstam's friends and fellow, friend and fellow journalist David Remick wrote, I am so terribly sorry that Harrison is gone. I can only tell you that as a journalist and as a man, he was a great hero to me, an absolute example of what it was and what it is to report honestly, to write honestly, and to live honestly. Hedrick Smith, like Remick, part of the generation uh, after Harrison on the Moscow beat, told Charlotte he was always going to the heart of the matter, whether in Hanoi, in Moscow, or Birmingham, or 43rd Street. And this is the most interesting comment of all. Arthur Sulzberger, publisher of the New York Times, summed up everyone's thought. Quote, I would often subject my actions or decisions to a simple test. What would Harrison think? And uh, Sulzberger died recently, and there was a very long obituary, uh, even by New York Times standards. And at the end of the obituary, there was calls from the White House, and there were only two that were noted. The White House wanted Haberstam out of uh, Saigon, and they were appalled that uh, Salisbury had gone to Hanoi and written dispatches. And these were the two calls that the publisher got from the White House. So Salisbury uh, led a great life uh, and was well recognized at the end of it. His first scoop as a United Press reporter, he grew, grew up in Minnesota, uh, went to the University of Minnesota, was the editor of the Daily Minnesota, uh, and then wound up working for United Press uh, in Chicago, uh, and uh, then went to Washington. And his first big scoop was a major article that he did uh, on uh, the assassination of Huey Long in Baton Rouge. Uh, it became a uh, a major part of his early look. And he looked at Huey Long as governor of Louisiana and then a senator, uh, and what he meant to the people of Louisiana. Uh, and he spent uh, some time in Louisiana uh, and then came back uh, and wrote the story. And it was more about Huey Long's impact and why people loved him and hated him, uh, and what was the significance of Long, uh, and that really elevated Harrison Salisbury, both as a very good journalist uh, and then as a scoop artist, uh, which he certainly uh, was. He began as a foreign correspondent in London uh, with where he headed the United Press 
Bureau uh, uh, and uh, wound up going to Russia uh, as UP uh, correspondent uh, uh, and a replacement uh, for the normal UP correspondent uh, in uh, Moscow uh, for the period of 1944-1945. Among the most important trips he took as part of that uh, uh, trip uh, into the Soviet Union in 44-45 was he made his first trip to Leningrad uh, on February 6th, uh, 1944. What is the significance of February 6th, 1944? The 872-day siege by the Nazis of Leningrad had just ended. The siege lasted from September 8th, 1941 to January 27th, 1944. Salisbury arrived on February the 6th. Uh, It was an awful, awful uh, period of time for Leningrad. And in fact, there were 1.5 million casualties in Leningrad, civilian and military casualties. And if you've ever been to St. Petersburg, you see the big mounds, uh, burial mounds of the uh, people, uh, 1.5 million uh, who died in that. And that eventually led uh, to one of his major books, uh, which was a book on the 900-day siege of Leningrad, which came out in 1969, and I'll say something about that later on. He came home, left United Press, uh, did some freelancing, and then in 1949 uh, uh, became the New York Times correspondent uh, in uh, Moscow. Uh, he was hired uh, in the hopes that he could get a visa, and lo and behold, he did get a visa uh, uh, to go and be the New York Times correspondent, uh, surprising some uh, in the New York Times as well as himself, uh, and he was off and running uh, in the New York Times. There were a lot of very important topics he covered in the five uh, years, almost five years, uh, from 1949 uh, to 1954. Um, and I know an awful lot of you are aware that he was accused of being too pro-Soviet, and he was very concerned about that accusation uh, because it turns out that his dispatches were censored like crazy, and he argued with the New York Times uh, for a long period of time as to whether they should in fact put a notice that these dispatches were subject uh, to uh, 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 severe censorship. Uh, He was not naive about what was going on in the Soviet Union, Uh, and he was not uh, uh, safe in the Soviet Union. Uh, And one of the things I want to describe uh, is uh, what happened to him, uh, so he later found out. Uh, I'm quoting again. In early December 1949, the New York Times became concerned about his safety as well as his possible expulsion. This worry arose because of a November report by Will uh, Listener, the Times in-house communist specialist. Sometimes U.S. Embassy carelessly put his letters in the open mail instead of including them in the diplomatic dispatch. That was dangerous as he added uh, censored uh, materials, those cut from his dispatches as well as personal analysis and speculation. Uh, Some of this boldness of my reporting and by the sharpness of my complaints might be used uh, by other Times correspondents and correspondents. Uh, so was there any uh, 
concern uh, about his safety. Um, these warnings pestered Salisbury, and so did the Times' caution and avoidance of the suggested slug that his uh, dispatches were subject to censorship. Years later, he found out from Gay Talese's book, The Kingdom and the Power, that Talese had heard that Salisbury was the target of an MVD, the secret police, uh, and might be arrested, shot, or killed. Uh, and it was not until 1977 that he met MVD defector Yuri Nosenko, who had worked for the C also worked for the CIA. And he related to Harrison that in 1953, while heading the MVD's section for overseeing far, foreign correspondence, he read a fat file on Salisbury. He found out that a proposal had been made to Stalin that I be given a drug that would induce paralysis. The drug's effect might last eight months and require his departure from Moscow, if not his death. Though Stalin refused to use it as uh, its use as too risky, Nosenko related the agents suggested that Hall Salisbury's uh, dispatches revealed much more uh, that he uh, had obtained from public sources. He got secrets, they thought, from high within the Kremlin itself. At that time, uh, Salisbury felt secure in his position, but he shouldn't have been. So there was a potential assassination plot of this reporter because he was the reporter who knew too much uh, as far as the Russians were concerned. Well, he came home in 1954 and uh, in late 1954 wrote 14 articles, September and October of 1954. And those articles uh, turned out to uh, win for him uh, the Pulitzer Prize for foreign reporting uh, in 1955. Uh, the articles were uh, in effect on the Soviet Union after Stalin, who had died in 1953, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, it was obviously a literary achievement of the high order to win a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, on May the 2nd, 1955, uh, President Grayson Kirk, president of Columbia University and chair of the Pulitzer Committee telegrammed Salisbury that the university trustees had awarded him the Pulitzer for his reporting uh, of international affairs. Uh, so here he is at the apex uh, of his career, uh, but he remained forever concerned uh, that people thought he was soft on communism. Uh, he, his analysis that didn't get published uh, uh, in uh, his newspaper reporting uh, were in fact uh, uh, very factual, uh, very analytical, uh, although he made a major observation that was at the root of much of his reporting, and that observation was that the Soviet Union would not engage in land war with the West uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, he had traveled through Eastern Europe on a number of occasions, and there was no uh, battle plans, there was no fortifications, there was no armaments, so he came to the conclusion uh, early on uh, that the Soviet Union would not risk a land war uh, with the West uh, over Eastern Europe. He then uh, went uh, on a trip of Eastern Europe, uh, uh, and uh, that trip, uh, he departed on July 28, 1957, uh, and he traveled all over Eastern Europe, and he wrote 50 articles, uh, August, 
through October 1957, uh, and they won him his share of a second uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, what did he learn about Eastern Europe? He learned that all communist countries were not one shade of red, but many hues, unlike the view of communist solidarity preached by Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and Senator Joseph McCarthy. Only later would he discover that as many dispatches would move the Pulitzer Prize uh, to uh, award him and the other New York Times correspondents uh, 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 a second Pulitzer Prize. These approximately 50 articles offered a unique insight into communist diversity. Uh, Warsaw, Budapest, uh, Tirana, they were all very, very different. Uh, and uh, they were, uh, the Iron Curtain was a leaky tin roof, according to Salisbury, with a lot of grubby little dictatorships, uh, but they did it their own way, and they were not just aping what the Soviet Union did. He came home uh, to uh, New York uh, and uh, did a lot of reporting uh, in, uh, 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 in the United States. Uh, 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 Ipogene, uh, Sulzberger was always concerned about why New York was so dirty, and every New York Times reporter had to talk about trash. Well, Salisbury did it the way Salisbury did it. He rode garbage trucks, interviewed refuge workers, officials in New York, uh, and uh, he uh, netted a page one series of articles on garbage. That was the last time she ever asked the question, uh, because he answered the question definitively. And that was sort of typical of uh, uh, Salisbury. Uh, but he had another antagonist uh, after Stalin, and that antagonist was Bull Connor uh, in Birmingham. Uh, that uh, David Halberstam suggested that he travel south and study the civil rights movement. Uh, he had done no uh, traveling in the south since he'd covered uh, Huey Long's funeral uh, 25 years earlier, uh, but he did go to the south. Uh, he. Uh, went to Nashville, to Baton Rouge, to Birmingham, uh, to Raleigh, to Montgomery. Uh, and in Birmingham, uh, he met an awful lot of people. And he wrote an article uh, that just blew the top off of uh, Birmingham because he predicted uh, that Birmingham uh, would uh, have major, major social disruptions. Uh, the title of uh, the article dated April 12th, uh, uh, 1960, was Fear and Hatred Gripped Birmingham, Racial Tension Smoldering After Belated Sit-Downs. His article outraged Birmingham whites. This is a big lie. Perhaps it was the biggest of all. Salisbury has done his damage, fumed the editor of the Birmingham News, uh, E.L. Holland. Uh, and the next day, his paper ran the following story. New York Times slanders our city, can this be Birmingham? Well, guess what? Birmingham did blow up, uh, but only after Salisbury was sued and the New York Times uh, was sued about this uh, libelous article, uh, a set of articles about Birmingham. So we also, we've got Stalin, we've got East European dictators, and now we've got Bull Connors, although in the end, uh, Salisbury won the legal case, and the New York Times uh, won uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, a very famous Supreme Court case uh, as to uh, uh, what uh, newspapers could publish and when they were liable 
uh, for uh, 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 damages. Uh, without any question, the most controversial aspect of Salisbury's life was, in fact, not his reporting from Moscow, uh, but his reporting from Hanoi. Uh, Harrison Salisbury went to Hanoi uh, on, he arrived, I believe, uh, it was Christmas Day, 1966. Um, and um, that began a series of articles uh, that exploded like political dynamite on the White House uh, and enraged uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he had been relentlessly campaigning for a North Vietnamese visa, uh, and he got it in December of 1966. On the morning of December 15, 1966, the Foreign Times editor, Seymour Topping, handled, handed Harrison uh, a cablegram with these words, you're in. Uh, the visa was awaiting him uh, in Hanoi. Uh, he landed on December 23rd. The first newspaper article uh, was on Christmas Day. There were a total of 23 articles. Uh, uh, they went all the way from Christmas morning, 1966, to January the 18th, 1967. Uh, Fifteen of them had a dateline from Hanoi and eight from Hong Kong. Um, and they were widely read articles uh, because what the articles conclusively showed uh, that, in fact, the bombing uh, had many civilian casualties. It was not just pinpoint uh, bombing of military uh, targets. Uh, so uh, there was enormous uh, public interest. Obviously, the military brass disagreed uh, with this, although it is interesting uh, that David Halberstam says the following about McNamara. It is interesting to note David Halberstam's take on the LBJ administration's response to Salisbury's article. He, McNamara, paid particular attention to stories about the destruction caused by the bombing. When Harrison Salisbury of the Times visited Hanoi at the end of 1966, his articles were violently attacked by the administration, particularly Defense Department spokesmen, but McNamara was fascinated by them and followed them closely. And that was, of course, a premonition that McNamara and the administration uh, and the military were out of sorts on the effectiveness of uh, the bombing. So what happened? Well, what happened was uh, Harrison Salisbury lost a third Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so this is what we say about that. When the Salisbury frenzy ended, when congratulations and criticisms finished, he faced a journalistic assassination. In the eyes of US leaders, Salisbury knew too much. It was not dissimilar, a dissimilar motivation from Stalin's when he considered killing the Times bureau chief. It was, as in the notorious case of Bull Connor, a personal vendetta against Harrison and the Times. Uh, and the uh, famous historian Stanley Carnot put it succinctly, an advisory board composed largely of publishers overruled a jury of newspaper editors that had voted to award uh, the uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, to Salisbury. Uh, in fact, uh, Carnot uh, said for a period of time, it's a great quote, um, that um, for a while, quote, in early 1967, it seemed that Salisbury had replaced Ho Chi Minh as the administration's 
uh, prime adversary uh, over Vietnam. Um, so he lost a Pulitzer Prize that was recommended by the selection committee and overruled by publishers. Publishers would never do anything like that, would they, Mr. Bryan? Uh, but in this case, they did. Uh, and uh, Salisbury, that was the major casualty uh, because they had enlisted other reporters to go after him for what kind of a journalist he was uh, and what he did. So now you've got Stalin, you've got East European dictators, you've got Bull Connors, and you've got Lyndon Johnson and his White House staff, all who hate uh, Harrison Salisbury. And that's really what got us interested. What can be wrong with a guy that is hated by the Kremlin and the White House? <laughs> He's got to be some, something pretty good, doesn't he? Um, the last 20 years uh, of his life, uh, he spent dealing with China um, and reflecting on China and reflecting on uh, the great power relationship between Russia and China. Uh, and one thing that he said that was really interesting uh, to Professor Davis and I was uh, that um, who lost China? Big question in the 1940s. Uh, where the Republicans charged that the Democrats lost China. Uh, for Stalin, I mean for Salisbury, Stalin lost China for Russia, and McCarthy lost China uh, for the United States. Uh, but what he said was the United States had figuratively put out the eyes of its best China specialist, and we didn't understand in the 1950s and 1960s that we had an opportunity in China an opportunity later very effectively used by uh, President Richard Nixon and Secretary of State, or National Security Advisor, and then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. And he said, we blinded ourselves and by so doing stumbled into two terrible wars, Korea and Vietnam, neither of which need have been fought. And it took two of the most unlikely people, Nixon and Kissinger, to get it right in 1972 and put us on the right track. Well, what did uh, uh, Salisbury think about China? He was fascinated with China from his youth in the Twin Cities on. Uh, there was a Chinaman shop that he reported uh, had a lot of uh, 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 things for sale there, and he was fascinated by that. And he really wanted to go to China before he wanted to go to Russia but didn't make it. UP sent him to Russia. New York Times hired him to go to Russia. But then from 1956 on, he was trying to get to China. 1956, he did not make it until 1972. And that leads to a very interesting uh, uh, session with Cho An Lai, the Chinese foreign minister. Um, he considered his dinner with, uh, I'm reading, uh, Cho An Lai, The Trip's High Point. On June 16, 1972, Harrison Charlotte, his wife, and a group of old China hands and their spouses dined with Cho An Lai in the Great Hall of the People. Harrison asked the premier why China had consistently refused uh, a visa for him since the end of 1956. According to Harrison's wife, Zhou answered, we were afraid of angering the Russians as you were a well-known anti-Stalinist and Cold War 
But by 1972, the Chinese weren't concerned about angering the Russians anymore because they had already invited Nixon uh, to come to China. So he had a love affair uh, with uh, China from 1973-72 until Tiananmen Square in 1989. Uh, and uh, he happened to be uh, in the Peking Hotel at the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, and he literally became unglued. He was stunned with what the Chinese had done uh, to their young people, uh, especially. Uh, and he had been doing a eulogistic, triumphant uh, 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 biography of Deng Xiaoping's restoration of China. But that book quickly became known as The New Emperor, uh, and it was not a eulogistic uh, coverage of China. So now let's go back. You have Stalin, you have East European dictators, you have Bull Connor, you have LBJ, and now you have Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese leadership, all very critical of Harrison Salisbury as a reporter. Uh, so uh, uh, his uh, end in terms of China uh, was clearly his concerns about uh, uh, Tiananmen Square and its aftermath. Now, he did 29 books. Um, and I'm going to stop in about five minutes and let you answer, ask questions. Four of them were major histories. Uh, one of them was the 900-day siege of Leningrad, which came out in 1969. And then he did another book on Russia called Black Knight, uh, White Snow, which was a redoing of the Russian Revolution. Uh, and how did that take place? Uh, and then he did two books on China. He redid Mao's Long March, The Long March, The Untold Story, by interviewing survivors. This was with complete uh, Chinese approval, uh, and that came out in 1985. And then his last book was uh, China in the Ear of Mao and Deng uh, in 1992. So he became an admired historian. And that's not to say everybody agreed with everything he said in those four accounts. Uh, but he was an amazingly productive uh, and prescient writer uh, who really uh, got an awful lot of things right. So what's his legacy? What is the legacy of Harrison Salisbury? His career, uh, as I said, spanned uh, six decades. Uh, it was an amazing career. He went right to the heart of the matter uh, in terms of uh, uh, his reporting. Uh, his personal story is a narrative of courage and adventure, of daring thought and writing. Uh, he, uh, his story was, without unnecessary embellishment, uh, uh, an amazing story. He was the se a seeker of truth. He was not an advocate for this ideology or that ideology. Uh, in the days of advocacy over news, confusion reigns. What are the facts? What is the analysis? He knew the difference. By the way, he was the founder of the op-ed uh, section of the New York Times. Uh, so he understood that there had to be a place for that kind of journalism, uh, but he really believed uh, that uh, his uh, uh, important work was telling the truth, asking tough questions, uh, particularly uh, of leaders. Uh, so we believe uh, that Harrison Salisbury uh, uh, is an amazing uh, journalist. Uh, we're, I was very pleased to see uh, Michael Martz's review of this book in the Times-Dispatch uh, uh, on March 17th, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he began 
by saying, Harrison Salisbury is flying the red eye home to New York from San Francisco on January 11th, 1967, in the opening of his memoir, 1988 memoir, A Time of Change, A Reporter's Tale of Our Times. Salisbury was returning from Hanoi, March writes, then capital of North Vietnam under aerial bombardment that he had chronicled exclusively for the New York Times. Salisbury wrote, I could have been killed in Hanoi as I crouched in concrete in a concrete manhole while the B-252s, the B-52s flew over, he wrote. I could be destroyed in New York by the firestorm my dispatches set up. <laughs> that was sort of Harrison Salisbury. Uh, he loved the adventure. He was a great uh, correspondent, a great foreign correspondent, and Lord knows we need more people like Harrison Salisbury. Let me stop there and answer, uh, respond to any questions you have. Thank you very much. I want to show you one more slide. That is my concern today. Uh, I did an op-ed piece in the International Herald Tribune uh, that I think came out in 2006 or 2007. And I thought it was a brilliant op-ed piece. This was so much better, which was a French cartoonist living on the beaches uh, uh, of Thailand who captured what my concern now, and to a certain extent, Salisbury's concern uh, was, are we driving Russia and China together? Uh, if you read any uh, newspaper, uh, New York Times Sunday, China's leader argues for closer ties with Russia. Uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, has just left Russia. It was his first foreign visit. And think of what would happen if in fact, uh, through uh, our own activity, uh, we have anything to do with driving Russia and China together. Uh, I'm currently teaching an honors module at VCU entitled The Eagle, the Bear, the Dragon, and the Peacock, American, Russian, Chinese, Indian relations in the 21st century. And that's the major question that that class is wrestling with. Uh, what happens, what will happen to the United States if Russia and China come together and is India an alternative for us? Because our relations with Russia are not good, and our relations with China are getting testier and testier and testier. Uh, and what should we be doing? The last assignment for those young people, and they're really nice young people, is a paper uh, where each of them have been appointed Secretary of State in the year 2020, and they're going to serve as eight years as Secretary of State. And what are they going to do about American Russian? Chinese-Indian relations. Thank you very much. Questions? <coughs> Dr. Trani, you, you spoke of uh, uh, kind of a current issue. Given uh, Salisbury's uh, uh, work up until his death and in your experience, uh, how would you offer guidance to our policymakers on Russia and China? Um, I would think that Salisbury would say that it is really important uh, for, first of all, us to get to know both countries very, very well. Uh, one of the things that has struck me about who interprets Russia for, the for America historically uh, have been largely um, emigres, their children. Uh, and who has interpreted China for us? 
white Americans who are infatuated with China. And I don't believe either of that group are realistic in terms of uh, what we ought to be looking with in terms of Russia and China. So the first thing I think we have to do is get a lot more people who know Russia and China intimately and make sure uh, they are very, very important uh, in terms of American foreign policy in the future. Uh, I think there are a lot of issues that we should be cooperating with Russia about. Uh, Anti-terrorism, the Russians have it uh, dramatically in their own country. Uh, energy, uh, one of the points uh, of Russia and China coming together is in fact over energy. The, uh, Russia is the second largest uh, producer of oil and the first largest producer of natural gas. And if all that oil and gas goes to uh, uh, China, uh, who probably could use it all uh, uh, because they are uh, a major quest for uh, Chinese foreign policy uh, is in fact energy. Uh, so I think uh, energy is a second area that we could have good relations with Russia. I think we can participate in the Russian economy to a much greater extent. Germany is investing far more uh, dollars, German companies in Russia than we are. Uh, it's very difficult for American business people uh, uh, to do business, and that's partly American difficulties and partly Russian difficulties. So I think there are a lot of things we can do with Russia. Uh, in, in terms of China, I guess the major question that I have uh, in terms of both uh, countries, how important should democracy be as a major foreign policy goal for the United States? Because clearly we're having trouble with both countries where we are preaching to them that they ought to become more like the United States more Western, more democratic uh, in terms of our uh, activities. Uh, uh, and we it's a big issue with Russia. And China has told us it's none of our business to pay any attention to them. So I think we just need a more realistic policy uh, where we're not going to have either as partners, but we can have issues that we work very closely with them. Iran, for example, the Russians have enormous influence in Iran, and that can be very useful right now. Okay? Other questions? Uh, in 1989, uh, Harrison Salisbury came to Virginia Commonwealth University uh, to, to talk about the uh, falling of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. And at that time, the way I read his comments, that he <laughs> thought it was really a destructive element, uh, it sounded as if it's almost a demise of communism as a force. Yes. Uh, would you want to comment on that in terms, of, if I recall correctly, and uh, the aftermath of that kind of an observation, if it if it was accurate? Yeah, I, you know, first of all, I'm a great fan of President Reagan. I think he did it right uh, in terms of upping the ante uh, with the Soviet Union and with Gorbachev, uh, uh, and I think the fall of the Berlin Wall was in fact the symbol. Now, Salisbury clearly understood that. Uh, he published a couple of articles in Penthouse Magazine, not where somewhere the majority of you would read on a regular basis, but it was on the death of the Soviet Union. Uh, they paid him and he wrote the articles. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think he clearly understood uh, that the Soviet Union uh, was gone uh, and that communism, as he had grown up with it, uh, was never going to be the same again. Yes, sir. Um, 
back in the 19, late 1950s, yes. uh, a lot of us sort of had the sense that the Russian, the Soviet you know, armies were along in great strength along the Chinese border. Yeah. That they were very fearful that the Chinese might break through with all the heavy population into areas that were relatively unpopulated. Yeah. Yet at the very same time, we were getting all the stories about this axis between China and the Soviets as if they were of one mind. Yeah. Uh, were, were other reporters actually describing the tensions that existed? Yeah, Salisbury understood that Mao was no disciple of Stalin. He clearly understood that. Uh, but he didn't think there were real Chinese experts in the United States who could talk about that if they knew it uh, because of McCarthy and what went on uh, during that and people like uh, uh, Davis and service, uh, foreign service officers who were mustered out of the foreign service because they were viewed as too sympathetic to, uh, uh, to Mao and uh, to uh, the Chinese communists. Uh, but Salisbury clearly understood, and that was what he won his second Pulitzer Prize for, his participation in that, was all of the differences in the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, that those countries, a lot of it was nationalism, it was not communism, and he came to that understanding, and he clearly understood there were difficulties, and you are dead right. It was in 1969 when there was literally a border warfare going on between the United States, I mean between the Soviet Union and China, and that was the beginning led to ping pong diplomacy and to Nix, uh, Kissinger's trip and then Nixon's trip uh, because um, the uh, Chinese became very concerned about Russia uh, uh, and the Russians very concerned about China, about all these millions of people. Uh, if you go back to that book that uh, Distorted Mirrors uh, that we did, uh, in fact, uh, that's a major point uh, uh, in that. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, you, you all and me, all of us believe that Nixon played the China card against the Soviet Union. Nixon may have played the China card, but Mao played the American card. And if you go into the Chinese archive, that's what it says. <laughs> that Mao and Chow An Lai made a very conscious decision that they needed to get out of the box of being viewed as a satellite of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was very dangerous to them. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, and those difficulties still exist. They still have a 2,700 mile border. Uh, and a lot of Russians, you just talk to them, are petrified that China will occupy, if not physically, economically, large portions of Eastern Siberia uh, in their quest for natural resources and their quest for living space. So, that may prevent this from happening, but we've got to be very skillful how we deal with both Russia and China. Since language is very often a barrier, yeah. I'm curious, did Salisbury actually become conversant in Russian yeah. and Chinese? No, not Chinese, okay. Russian. Uh, he became very good at Russian. Uh, uh, it started, obviously, when he was there in 1944, 1945, uh, but uh, he got to the point where his Russian was actually very, very good, uh, and it allowed him um, incredible opportunities to learn the country. Uh, I recall that when I was there in 1981, um, there were 
there were about six Americans who were non-press or non-diplomatic people in Moscow at that time. And I happened to be the one talking on foreign policy at Moscow University, Moscow State University. Um, and I went everywhere. Um, you know, I was careful of who was following me. Uh, in the old days, in 1981, uh, when somebody was following you, that was a good sign because that meant you were safe. Today you go to Moscow and you're followed, that's not a good sign because uh, it means you could be robbed. Uh, but um, the um, reporters, by and large, didn't know Russian in 1981 and sat in the snack bar of the American embassy and got their information from the State Department officials. Um, and that was not good. There were a couple of reporters. Uh, Ann Garrels, there was a, uh, uh, an ABC reporter, Ann Garrels, absolutely fluent in Russian. And wherever I went in the dissident community, she had been there before me, and that was a real testimony to her because I got pretty de uh, deep into that uh, community in 1981. But she was very unusual. Reporters from a lot of the other, uh, 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 both press, uh, print, uh, media, and uh, television didn't know Russian and were dependent on taking translators. But Salisbury was not. And by the time he left in uh, 54, uh, his Russian was really good, and it helped him immeasurably in meeting Russians and being able to get all around uh, whether he had watchers or not. But he never learned Chinese. But he had very close relationships with uh, Jack Service, uh, the former Foreign Service officer, and others who really helped him in that area. Okay? Uh, yeah. At the time that uh, Harrison Salisbury went to Hanoi, yeah. I was in uniform and preparing to go to Vietnam. Yeah. I remember that, uh, yes, he was vilified, but much less so than Bernard Fall, mm. whose was surveilled, whose communications were monitored, who had a significant dossier uh, at the FBI. Mm. You mentioned Bull Connor, you mentioned LBJ. Yeah. Was Harrison Salisbury also surveilled by the FBI? Um, he was certainly watched very closely. Uh, he, uh, I, I have not looked at his FBI file. I, uh, that's not something we did. Uh, but um, what the assassination plan for Salisbury was the White House marshaled every reporter they could lay their hands on to go after him. John Scally from ABC News attacked Salisbury mercilessly. Uh, Joseph Kraft from the Washington Post went after Salisbury. Uh, and there was uh, a one part, one of the uh, 23 dispatches was on a city that was bombed. Uh, and Salisbury reported uh, information that was given to him. And in the first article that was run about that, it was not noted that it came from uh, North Vietnamese officials. But it was the same material that was quoted by every other re uh, reporter. But they went after him over that issue that he was just a dupe of the communists. Uh, and uh, I mean, there was big divisions on Salisbury. Uh, Senator Fulbright didn't invite him to testify. Uh, and you can imagine that uh, 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 the senators were broke on the political uh, parties uh, uh, about him during that testimony. But he did suffer significantly. Uh, in my estimation. So he certainly lost the third Pulitzer Prize without any question, but uh, I think it was, a, it also, 
got the New York Times very wary about Salisbury uh, in terms of leadership posts. He became an assistant editor, but he never became an editor, never became a publisher of the New York Times. So I think uh, they did him in. Uh, uh, but, you know, he just trucked on. Okay? Did he know uh, Stalin at all? And if so, what was his uh, impression? Did he know? Stalin. Uh, no. He never, I mean, he never, Eugene Lyons interviewed Stalin. Uh, he tried like crazy to interview Stalin, and Stalin uh, uh, would not see American reporters. Uh, but he had very definite opinions about Stalin. Uh, he was no Walter Durante uh, in terms of uh, uh, just washing over Stalin and his difficulties. Uh, uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, in the articles that he wrote that were massacred by the censors and the articles that came home, I mean, it was blow by blow of Stalin and Beria and the secret police. And uh, uh, so he thought he was... Uh, uh, maybe a good wartime leader uh, for the Soviets, but he was also a merciless dictator, and that's what he thought. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs>